0: by looking at a passage in Exodus chapter 12 because this passage of the Scripture has application to what was going on in the Lord's life between the 10th of Nisan, which was Palm Sunday when he officially presented himself to Israel as her Messiah, and the 14th of Nisan, which would be the day that he would die. Um, As we know, he was the fulfillment of all that the Passover lamb pictured. He was the Lamb of God who would die and shed his blood for the sins of Israel and, of course, the whole world. And according to the commandment of God given to Moses and his brother Aaron to give to Israel, the Passover lamb was to be selected on what day? The 10th of Nisan. Nisan became, God told Nisan it's a month It's a month. It's comparable to our April or March. God told them to make Nisan, Nisan, don't think of a car, it's a month, uh, the first month of the year. Did you know that the Jewish people have two calendars? They have a religious calendar and they have a secular calendar. Well, Nisan, comparable to our April, is to be their first month of their religious calendar. But they were to select the first passover they were to select that lamb on the tenth of Nisan, and then for the next three and a half days until the fourteenth of nissan what were they to do they took that little lamb into their homes and they it became like a family pet the children especially got really close to that little lamb but they were to examine the lamb for the next three and a half days and to make sure it had no spots no blemishes whatsoever and then hmm, kill it slay it on the 14th. And of course, originally on the first Passover, they took the blood of the lamb and they applied it to the doorposts of their homes so that the angel of death would pass over any home whose the, the lamb, the blood of the lamb was on the, the doorpost. And that's what I want to read to you because um, this examination process is going on right now in the Lord Jesus Christ's life. He had officially presented himself to Israel as her Messiah, her Passover lamb, the fulfillment of the Passover lamb on the 10th of Nisan. And then for the next three and a half days, he was being examined very, very carefully and by whom? The religious rulers of Israel. He was in the household as the household and those of in charge of the household were the religious rulers and they were examining him we've already seen one examination question that they gave to him which was to question his authority well, You know what why are you doing how are you doing the things that you're doing who gave you the authority and we're going to also follow uh, see three more examination questions but they didn't know it but they're fulfilling the the um the whole picture of the passover lamb so let's look first of all at exodus chapter 12 i want to read verses 1 to 3 and then we're going to skip down and read verses 5 and 6 where it says and the lord spake this is the lord god spake unto moses and aaron in the land of egypt saying this month and if you want to write in your bibles that's nisan n-i-s-a-n this month shall be unto you the beginning of months it shall be the first month of the year to you Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. Now look at verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until what day? The fourteenth day of the same month. and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening, which was at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, which was exactly when Jesus died, on the 14th of Nisan at three o'clock. So uh, what's interesting to see, now you can go over to Matthew 22 if you would. What's interesting to see is that this examination process did indeed take place in the days of Christ's life during the 10th and the 14th of Nisan of his Passion Week. He was examined in the Jewish household, Jerusalem, by the Jewish religious leaders who approached him in rapid fire succession, one after another, with their particular examination questions. Although their motives were evil, every time they approached him, as we're going to see, it was evil. Uh, Yet the Lord God was using these official religious leaders of the nation to complete his perfect picture of the true Passover lamb. Just as the hatred and rejection of the religious rulers of the Messiah had been predicted, you know, they didn't, they didn't realize that all along in Psalm 118 and in other passages of the scripture, it had been predicted that when their Messiah came, they would reject him. You know, they were supposed to be the spiritual builders of Israel. And it, it said there that they would, the, the stone, the builders would reject the stone. The stone speaks of, of the Messiah. They didn't know that when they were rejecting him, they were fulfilling Messianic scripture. Just like here, their motives in examining him are evil because they all they want to do is try to find a blemish in him, him. You know, they're trying to trip him up and discredit him publicly. Uh, find some blemish in him that they could use to have him arrested and then put away permanently. But God was using them, you see, to fulfill the Passover picture. They're the ones who are examining him. And how does he come through this examination process? Absolutely spotless. Not a single blemish on him. It's amazing to behold how he answers all these examination questions the one we're going to look at today was really a tough one it would be for a regular man it was a politically loaded question the one we will look at when we return is a doctrinally loaded question that now the one today comes to him from <clears throat> some pharisees now so far if you look back at verse 23 so far pharisees haven't asked him anything which is unusual because they're usually his most vocal enemies but they're there. We know that they are there because in verse 45 it says, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But they didn't ask the original question about his authority. If you look at verse 23, who asked that ori- original question? It says, <clears throat> chief priests and the elders of the people. And over, I think it's Mark or Luke, tells us that there were also scribes. Involved in that first a question about you know who in the world gave you authority to do what you're doing Um, but there's no pharisees because chief priests were always sadducees So today we're going to find that the pharisees said well, you know the chief priests have failed But we're going to huddle together and we're going to come up with a question That he'll never be able to answer without getting into trouble So now we're going to hear from some pharisees and their question and they they're Very They're very deceptive in how they do this because they don't come themselves. They send some of their young disciples and they send those disciples with a group of Herodians to ask their question. But next week when we have that question about the woman with the seven husbands (laughs) and whose husband will be hers or no, whose wife will she be in the resurrection, that question comes from the Sadducees. And you know why? Because they didn't believe in resurrection. So they thought they were going to trip him up doctrinally. And then we'll see that the Pharisees come back at him for yet another question that has to do with the uh, the great commandment and they send a lawyer. So it's just, you know, rapid-fire succession questions and it's all fulfilling God's Passover lamb examination and as Terry says, he comes out clean as a whistle. They are the ones <laughs> who come out with all kinds of blemishes and spots on them. So, Today we're going to look at, the name of this lesson, Part A and Part B, is Loaded Questions Silenced. Today we're going to see a question from the Pharisees, a politically loaded question. So let's look at verses 15 to 22 in Matthew, I mean, yeah, Matthew 22, 15 to 22. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples, with the Herodians saying, here's what their disciples, the young Pharisaic disciples, along with a group of Herodians, say to Jesus, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man. In other words, you're no respecter of persons, we know that. For thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their what? Wickedness. And said, why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Don't you love that? (laughs) He didn't pull back any punches, did he? He says, show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny or a denarius. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. That's a very famous saying I guess all of us know. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. And over in Luke's parallel account, it says, And they held their peace. (laughs) <laughs> That's why I call this loaded questions silenced. Every time, he totally silences his enemies. Well, some Pharisees who obviously had been present to hear the Lord's long parabolic answer to the chief priests and, and, and elders. First question, you know, challenging his authority. They had been there and they had heard his answer. But so far, they hadn't spoken up. But now we find out in verse 15 that they left the temple area. And by the way, we learn from after all these challenge questions, he has that, you know, he looks over and sees the widow who puts her two mites into the temple treasury. So we know where he is when all this is going on. He's in the temple and he's in the court of the women. Well, the Pharisees leave the court of the women and they go over to, probably, to the Sanhedrin Council building, which isn't that far away. And they have another little huddle, or they have a huddle session. They have a caucus session. They said, well, those chief priests weren't able to get him, but we're going to come up with a question that's really going to get him. And they they uh, took counsel. It says how they might entangle him in his talk. Now, these were the Lord's most vocal enemies. If anyone of the Jewish sects, S-E-C-T-S, was... Um, his greatest enemies, who would you say they were? Probably the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most vocal. The Sadducees had the most power, but the Pharisees were definitely the most vocal. So it's not surprising we hear from them now. They're more determined than ever to uh, to, um, to to come up with something that is going to trap Jesus. And the, the word that is used there, the Greek word for entangle, where it says that... Um, they wanted to find something how they could entangle him that is a word that means to trap just like it's the same word that, that the greeks would use to trap a bird in a in some kind of a trap or to trap a mouse or to trap some kind of an animal and mark tells us in mark 12:13 that they wanted to catch him in his words and luke 20:20 20, 20 tells us that they wanted to take hold of his words so that they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. They wanted to take hold of his words. So they wanted to entangle, they wanted to trap him in his talk, they wanted to catch him in his words, they wanted to take hold of his words. So why? So that they could take him to the governor. Do you know who the governor was at that time? Pontius Pontius Pilate. But... I just thought how absolutely ludicrous it is that mere men thought that they could get the very word of God himself. You know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the word. He's the one who spoke all into existence. He is the word of God. And yet these men think that they can entangle him. They can catch him. uh, They can take hold of his words to bring him to Pilate. Isn't that crazy? It's just just very foolish and very silly for them to think that by some little clever question of, of theirs that they can catch the word of God himself with his words, with his own words, his powerful words. And the reason it's so ludicrous is because Jesus never left any handles on his words for his enemies to take hold of, to use against him. Now, he left handles on his words for those who would take hold of his words in faith. I hope every time we meet here and every time you open up up the word of God that you take hold of his words. You know, he leaves handles on his words for believers. But he never leaves handles on his words for his enemies to entangle him and trap him because all he ever spoke was truth but and we see this because every debate he ever engaged in he always won didn't he they never could take hold of his words to use against him they had to lie to do that you know and bring in false witnesses but they're going to try again even though every time they've tried before they've been foiled Um, But they're going to try again, and this time their method of attack is going to be by the use of feigning and flattery. And the reason I use the word feigning is because Luke does. We'll see that in a few minutes. But they're going to try to feign. They're going to pretend to be who they aren't. Now, these are things we need to beware of. We shouldn't feign and we shouldn't flatter, you know, falsely flatter. Beware of faint. Beware of pretending to be something you're not to get what you want, and beware of flattering someone to try to get what you want. But that's what they do. The plot that was devised by the Pharisees involved sending to Jesus some of their young disciples, apprentices, future Pharisees, <laughs> who they figured Jesus would not recognize. I guess they didn't have the Pharisaic robes and all the attire of the Pharisees because they were still young and they were apprentices. So they figured that Jesus wouldn't know these young men and um, they would send them in their place to ask their little trick question. Luke says, here it is, Luke says this in 2020, they sent spies which should feign themselves just men. In other words, these young men, these young disciples are going to, To Jesus feigning themselves pretending to be just men now isn't that sad that they had to pretend to be just (laughs) you know they're future spiritual leaders of the nation and here they have to pretend that they're just this was outright deceit on the part of the the Pharisees and these young men first of all because the Pharisees themselves did not go it was deceit on their part um, that they didn't go they sent these men deceitfully, these young men, uh, because they knew if they went to Jesus with this question, he would know who they were. He'd had many encounters with them. He knew how they dressed, and so he would be on alert, and he may think before he answers the question. Second, this was outright deceit because the young Pharisaic disciples were pretending to be just men, to be holy, and to be righteous instead of the rascals that they were. <laughs> and they were instructed by the Pharisees uh, to flatter Jesus. They were to pretend to be some of his admirers who genuine, genuinely wanted his answer to a matter that they um, were troubled with and that the, the Jewish people had been troubled with this matter for many, many years. And it was a continual issue of debate among them. You know, should we pay the... They did pay the tax, but they didn't want to. And so they were always debating about paying the tax to Caesar. The contention had to do with the Roman poll tax or census tax. And I'll talk more about that later because that's what this whole issue is about. Coming with some Herodians, and that's what we're told in verse uh, 15 or is it 16? Yeah, 16, that they came with some Herodians would make it. Um, and now Herodians, they politically supported the Herod dynasty. That's where they get their name Herodians. They were Jewish fellas, but they supported the Herods, which was bad because the Herods were sitting as kings and tetrarchs over Israel, and they had no right to be because they weren't even Jewish they were Edomites. They came from the line of Esau, not Jacob. And they had no right to be. But, you know, it started with Herod the Great. Remember him? He was the Herod who was sitting as king of, uh, of Israel at the time Jesus was born. He was the one who was responsible for all the little boys in Bethlehem under the age of two being slaughtered. And he had sons, and they became tetrarchs, and one of them was Herod Antipas, who had just not too long before this beheaded John the Baptist. But these Herodians were Jewish people who supported the Herod dynasty, and also the Romans who put the Herods in those positions. And yet these young Pharisees come with these Herodians, and they're making it look like they, you know, they're just men, they're nice, sincere young guys. Maybe the Herodians were young guys too. And they had been having a debate among themselves. You know, should we pay the tax? The Herodians would, of course, say, yes, we should. And the young Pharisees would say, no, we don't think we should. And they're having this debate. And then they, one of them says, oh, I know. Why don't we go ask that famous master teacher? He's probably in the temple and we'll get his wise opinion on this matter. That's how they want Jesus to think. That they're coming to him, okay? But they're not. You know, they're all. They're, this is all a plot by the Pharisees. In verse sixteen, we learn the words of flattery that these disciples of the Pharisees, along with the Herodians, were to use when they approached Christ. And I'm sure all this was set up by the Pharisees. They told him exactly what to ask him and how to say it. So here's what they say. Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. You see, they were doing their pretentiously pious best to butter him up. So uh, with their words of praise... Because they wrongly thought that Jesus was like most men. They wrongly thought that he was like themselves. And that his ego would be so stroked by these words of praise and these words of admiration and by this request for his wisdom, you know, from these young, since supposedly sincere and righteous young men that, uh, that he wouldn't hesitate to give them an unguarded response. In other words, you know, they'd so stroke him that he would immediately give his wisdom on the matter. They thought that by good words and fair speeches, flattery, that they would throw the Lord Jesus off balance. What a joke. You can never, ever throw the Lord Jesus off balance. Ironically, however, we find that everything these young disciples said in their pretentious flattery of Jesus was true. He was master, and a Greek word used there for master is didaskali. It's uh, like teacher. He was a master teacher. He was the best master teacher this world has ever seen, but he was even more than that because he was a master of the whole universe. Also, it says they said that he. we know you're true. Well, he is true. He was true. Actually, he is the truth, is he not? He is truth incarnate. And he did teach the way of God in truth, as they said, because he taught the way of God in truth is through him. He is the way to God. He is the truth. He is the way. He taught men how a man is to live and how a man is to behave if he wishes to please God, and that was something that these young men desperately needed to listen to because they were currently involved not in the way of God in truth. They were involved in the way of Satan. They were all about deception, and Satan is the master of deception, isn't he? So they really, you know, if if they really believed that he did, that he was truth, true, and that he did teach the way of God in truth, then why in the world were they trying to deceive him? Why didn't they listen to him? Why didn't they obey his doctrine? And then they said that he didn't care about what men said about him, that it didn't influence him or his actions, that he didn't regard a, man, a person's, um, uh, an individual's person or their power, which is true, right? He, he was no respecter of persons. Uh, he always spoke the truth to a person, whether that person was a king or a tetrarch or a governor or whoever. He didn't care if they were a king or a pauper. He would speak the truth because he had no fear of what men could do to him. However, the, uh, the, the Pharisees' disciples were instructed to say this to Jesus. You know, we know that you don't fear any man and that you'll just say it like it is Jesus. They were told to say that to him so as to flatteringly invite him to respond fearlessly to their questions about paying the tribute money to Caesar. You see they're 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 buttering him up for they're flattering him for the kill. Here's what they're trying to do. In other words they're saying, "We know you don't care who a person is, Jesus, so you're not going to fear saying something against Caesar. Should we pay the the tax to Caesar?" You know, they want him to say, "No, we should not pay. As Jews, we should not pay the the tax to Caesar." And uh, that's why they have a group of Herodians with him, by the way, because if he said, no, do not pay, pay the tax to Caesar, what do you think the Herodians would do? Run off. They're all ready to go. They're ready to run off to Pontius Pilate to say, Jesus just spoke against Caesar. He's an insurrectionist. Pilate would have to come and arrest him, and that would be the end. So at this point, let's talk a little bit about the differences because it's just amazing that these two groups are together the Herodians and the Pharisees, because they have major differences. Let's talk about some of the differences between the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees were the conservatives of that day. They believed uh, that Israel should be free under her own laws of the Old Testament. They held that religion, their religion, Judaism, their form of religion, was dominant over government. That religion was dominant over government. And therefore, they would say, no, do not pay the tribute to Caesar. They adamantly despised Roman oppression. They despised the Roman authority over them. They despised paying taxes to Rome. On the other hand, and we know a lot more about Pharisees. You know, they're a bunch of hypocrites and all that from our other studies. But as far as the tax is concerned, they didn't want to pay it. They didn't like the Romans, and if they had their way, they would get rid of all the Romans, period. The Herodians, as I said already, they supported the Romans because uh, they were they were just compromisers. They were not a religious sect of Israel. They were a political sect. They were like a political party. I don't, I think they were just, like, really secular. I did read one commentary who said that if any Herodian had any religious background at all, he would tend to be more of a Sadducee. And the Sadducees didn't believe, I don't even know why they considered them a religious sect, because they didn't believe in any afterlife. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in the spirit world. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in, I don't know what they believed in other than Themselves (laughs) themselves. <laughs> they were really hedonists in my book, but uh, Herodians, if they had any affiliation with a religious party, it would be the Sadducees, but they were basically political and they accepted and promoted the rule of the Romans, the Romans. So they put government above religion, right? The Pharisees religion above government, Herodians government above religion. The Herodians compromised whenever they could. They're Jewish, but they're compromisers. Uh, They would compromise with Rome, with the Herods, in order to preserve their own power and their own influence. They liked the power that they got from their oppressors. Even to the degree of consenting to let the Romans build pagan temples there in Israel. They said, you know, what difference does it make? If you don't believe in an afterlife, big deal. You know, bring in your pagan temples if it'll help us with our own power and influence over the people. Of course, the people hated them. The people looked at them as traitors. But they held that government was dominant over religion, and they would therefore agree that the Jewish subjects of the Roman Empire must pay tribute to Caesar. So, you see, to find these two groups together is really kind of strange, isn't it? But their mutual hatred of Jesus is what brought them together. You know, sometimes I think that the greatest unity in the world is uh, against Christ. In the secular world, the greatest unity. Now, the greatest unity in the world, spiritually speaking, is the unity we find in the body of Christ. Our oneness in Christ. Because, you know, we can have all different backgrounds and go to different kinds of churches and go anywhere in the world, be different ages, have all kinds of differences, but yet we have this unity in Christ if we're truly born again, don't we? That's an amazing unity. It's a wonderful unity. But as far as the secular world is concerned, I would say that the greatest unity is against Christ. You know, men might despise one another. Nations might hate one another, war against each each other and disagree with one another. But they despise Christ even more. And they will join hands to, to oppose him and his cause. And isn't this exactly what's going to take place at the Battle of Armageddon? All the nations of the world will be gathered together. To uh, Originally, they're fighting one another. They're all against Israel, but they're fighting one another until who appears in the sky? Christ. And then they all join together and they fight, try to fight against him. Of course, that's a very short-lived rebellion. You know, just one word from his mouth, the word of God, and it's all over. Well, the Pharisees wanted a delegation of Herodians to join with their own disciples on this venture so that they, the Herodians, would be witnesses to the response Jesus would give when he uh, was asked about paying the Roman taxes. The Herodians, as I said, have, ha- have us had a strong allegiance to Rome and the Pharisees knew that they wouldn't hesitate to run to Pilate the minute Jesus said, yes, I mean, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't pay the, um, the, the tax to Caesar. Just think if the Pharisees had tried to do this little game without the Herodians. If the Pharisees, either themselves or just their disciples, had gone to Pilate. Let's say Jesus says, no, we shouldn't pay the tax to Caesar. And the Pharisees run off to tattle-tale on him to Pilate and tell Pilate, you know, this Jesus is an insurrectionist who's trying to stir up trouble for the Romans He's against Caesar. He just spoke against Caesar. Pilate, you see, would have a lot of difficulty believing them because he knew how much the Pharisees hated the Romans. So the last thing they would ever do would be to report on someone who was trying to revolt against the Romans he would think Pilate would think that they must be up to something and he might even suspect them of the uprising that they were trying to pin on Jesus so even if the Herodians were irreligious traitors to their own Jewish people the Pharisees needed them in this little wicked plot of theirs to entangle Jesus to ensnare Jesus And by the way, let's look at the Herodians' perspective of Jesus for a minute. How do you think the Herodians felt about Jesus? Well, they probably feared him in that he might actually stir up the people. He might be successful in stirring up the people in a revolution against Rome. After all, what had happened just two days earlier on Palm Sunday, the people were really stirred up about him and they were calling him their king and uh, their messiah and they expected him to, to revolt against Rome. So the Herodians, they always, they always opposed anyone who came along with me- any messianic claims because of the disturbance of the status quo that such claims caused among the people and what that would mean to them. They must have known also that Jesus had not too long before this called Herod Antipas a name. What was that name? That old fox. They knew, the Herodians knew that Jesus didn't have a lot of love in his heart. Well, you know, Jesus is loving, so, <laughs> but that he was against Herod. How could I word that? Uh, because Herod had just killed his, his friend, John the Baptist. He had beheaded John the Baptist. And, of course, thinking the way they would think, they would think that if Jesus did rise to a position of power, one of the first things he would do would be eliminate the Herods. Now, I don't know if Jesus would do that. He'd try to win them over to himself or something, but, but that's how they would think. And so uh, they, were, they were fearful of Jesus. So even though the Herodians despised greatly those self-righteous Pharisees who were always looking down their long, pious noses at them and put them in the same category as they put publicans and harlots and Gentiles. The Herodians, you know, to the Pharisees, they were like Gentiles. They were traitors. Yet, uh, they, they feared, the Herodians feared Jesus more than they hated the Pharisees. And as far as Jesus' answer to the question, what thinkest thou, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not, as far as his answer to that question was concerned, the Herodians probably felt they couldn't lose, no matter which way he answered. Because just think of this. If Jesus said, yes, pay the taxes to Caesar, then that would elevate the Herodians because that's what they were saying. Yes, pay the taxes to Caesar. And that would, you know... Make them look right and the Pharisees look wrong, although more likely it would result in Jesus completely losing his appeal to the Jewish multitudes because they want him to they would want him to say, no, don't pay the taxes. So the crowds would be very disenchanted with Jesus. And uh, but according to the Herodians, that would be okay too, because if Jesus lost his great following, that would be fine. Then they'd be in the clear and they wouldn't have to worry about an uprising against Rome. So they, they figured they were in a no-lose situation and they agreed with the Pharisees in that they saw no way Jesus could answer this question and not himself get in trouble. They saw it for Jesus as a no-win situation because if he said, no, the taxes should, be, should not be paid to Caesar, he would get in trouble with Pilate and the Romans, Right? And they would come and arrest him, and that would be the end. If he said, yes, the taxes should be paid to Caesar, then the people who strongly opposed Rome and the image of Caesar on the tribute coin, which was really what this issue was all about, that his image was on the coin they had to use, the people would rise up against Jesus, or at the very least, they would desert him, and he would have no following. So you see where we are? It, it, you know, human, humanly speaking, it looks like a, a terrible dilemma. How is Jesus going to answer this question? Well, maybe he could do what the, what the chief priest did, you know, just scratch his head and say, well, I don't know. But then wouldn't he also lose the people? You know, he's the master teacher and he doesn't know whether we should pay the taxes to Caesar or not. So he can't, you know, he can't just cop out on the answer altogether. And so they really, in arrogant confidence, they have this arrogant confidence that, that they've got him trapped. So these two unlikely bedfellows, the Pharisees and Herodians, come together feigning and flatteringly to catch a handle on Jesus's words by which they might drag him to the Roman authorities. And Luke, by the way, I've already read this to you, but in Luke 20:20, 20, 20, Luke is the one who tells us that they really did expect Jesus to say, no, do not pay the taxes to Caesar. And the reason we find this from Luke is because he says that, you know, um, they wanted to take hold of his words so that they might take him to the governor. So that's what they're really figuring he's going to say. Well, the Lord, does this surprise you? His response to their question begins with... <laughs> doesn't surprise you at all, does it? It begins with a question of his own. He says in what verse is this? Uh, 18, end of 18, yeah, it says Jesus perceived their wickedness and he asked them a question, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? And I love that. Uh, that immediately told his challengers many things, that question. First of all, it told them he saw right through to their hearts. He knew their hearts. He had not been tricked by either their feigning to be something that they were not or, nor was he deceived by their flattering tongues. He knew that they had an evil motive and that they were trying to tempt him. If you put all three synoptic gospel accounts on this little episode together, we find that Matthew tells us there in verse 18 that he perceived their wickedness. Mark tells us that he knew of their hypocrisy. And Luke tells us that he knew of their craftiness. They might have tried to feign themselves off as being righteous. But the Lord knows what's in a man, doesn't he? He can read the heart like an open book and that, you know, that can be kind of scary. He knows exactly what's going on in here and in here every moment of every day. He knew exactly what was in man. He's never deceived. And this was yet another, (laughs) another proof of his deity, wasn't it? Another proof of his deity that he knew, you know, I know who you guys are. You're not tricking me one single bit. It spoke of his omniscience. He saw right through the wicked, crafty hypocrisy of their hearts. His, and his question further told his challengers here the truth of what they had just said about him. What had they just said about him in their little flattering speech? That he didn't fear any man, that he was not a respecter of persons. Well, here he's proving that that's true. He didn't fear uh, or care about their power over him to do him harm. He would tell the truth regardless of who it was he t- told it to. He didn't care if they were representatives of the powerful Pharisees or Herodians who rubbed shoulders with Herod and and Pontius Pilate. He didn't care if what he said to these men made him even more unpopular with them or flamed their hatred of him to an even higher level. He didn't care. He simply told them what he knew to be true. They were hypocrites and they were trying to tempt him. And by the way, both the Old Testament and even rabbinic tradition spoke very strongly, condemned, spoke against and condemned the use of both feigning and flattery (laughs) in many passages. Uh, One particular passage is in Proverbs 29, 5, where it speaks against using flattery. It says this, a man that flattereth his neighbor spreadeth a net for his feet so beware of flattery. <laughs> because the one who might be, you know, overdoing it in flattery to you is trying to spread a net before your feet to catch you. Isn't that what they're doing with Jesus? They were flattering him because they wanted to catch him. They want you know were putting a net in front of him to try to catch him. And then uh, there's a lot of passages that speak against hypocrisy in the Old Testament, one being Job 1534 that says, for the congregation of hypocrites shall be desolate. The congregation of hypocrites shall be desolate. In fact, in the Talmud, the very famous Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, used that passage from Job to say this. He says, any community in which is flattery will finally go into exile, and then he quoted from Job. And as we know from history, the hypocritical leadership of Israel did indeed send the whole nation into exile, did it not, in 70 A.D.? So it's true. And they were warned against this, but, you know, they're using it anyway. They're using anything they can to try to get Jesus. Flattery and hypocrisy. Well, then, after telling them, you know, via a question, why tempt ye me, you hypocrites, that he was neither deceived nor falsely flattered, Jesus asked the men who had come to him with their politically loaded trick question, he asked them to show him a coin used to pay the poll tax. Now, historical records tell us that Rome extracted from her subjects three different taxes. One was a ground tax. They had to pay a ground tax on anything they produced from their ground, like grain or or wine or oil. Uh, they had to pay an income tax, which I thought was very reasonable. It was only 1% of a person's income. Now, that would be great today, wouldn't it? We only had to pay 1% of our income for taxes? I thought that was very, very uh good. (laughs) And then they had to pay the third one was the poll tax. Okay. And that also wasn't very difficult. It was only one denarius. That was the equivalent of a man's one man, uh, one day's labor for an average man. That's not unreasonable either, is it? One day out of 300, well, they had a 360 day calendar, but one day for the census or poll tax. And it had to be paid every year for males from the age of 14 to 65. Females had to pay from 12 years of age to 65. I guess that's because girls become women before men, boys become men. (laughs) But anyway, it was only, you know, it was uh, just a, a day's wage. But it wasn't the amount of the tax. It wasn't the amount that bothered the Jewish people. It was the fact that it had to be paid by a silver coin called a denarius. There are other taxes. The ground tax and the income tax could be paid with different coins, that had been engraved with uh, images from nature, such as ears of corn, palm branches, or vine leaves. But the denarius bore Caesar's image on it. And um, historical records tell us that whenever a new Caesar came to power over the Roman empire, the first thing he would do was issue a decree to have all of the, uh, issue new coins to be minted with his image on them. And huh? Do with the way with the others, I guess. Yeah, and mm -hmm. and so the coins were constantly changing with each new emperor. But uh, and his domain would be recognized as far as his currency was used and uh, circulated, and as long as his subjects accepted and used his coinage, they were admitting that they were his subjects. It's kind of like you know, here's 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 the currency we use, or you know, a dollar bill. And who's, whose face is on that dollar bill? George Washington. Can you see that from there? You just all know that already. Just like they knew whose image was on the immediately answer Caesar's. Well, wherever this money is is used and circulated, that shows that the people who use it are subject to George. <laughs> we are in his domain. We, you know, We use this money in the United States of America, don't we? We don't use yen, we don't use pounds, we don't use some other kind of money, drachmas, we use uh, dollars. And so that's, you know, if they used the money with Caesar's image, they were admitting that they were his subjects. And this is what bothered the Jews. It didn't bother the Herodians, but it did bother the Pharisees and, and the Jewish people. Because they considered themselves to be God's subjects, not Caesar's subjects. And, you know, even in that, they're rather hypocritical because we know that they really didn't subject themselves to God to God either, did they? I mean, they would say they did, but they obviously didn't because they would kill God's servants. They even killed God's son. They didn't recognize God in his son. So, you know, they're hypocrite, hypocrites through and through. But, uh, so it was offensive to them because they didn't consider themselves Caesar's subjects. And furthermore, it was offensive to them because of the engraved picture of the Roman emperor on the coin. And this issue was particularly offensive to them because, well, at the time of Christ's birth, Augustus Caesar's image, you know, he was the emperor when Jesus was born, Augustus Caesar. And his image was on the coin, and he had claimed for himself divine status. He claimed that he was a god. In fact, when Jesus was about five or six years old, there had been an insurrection in Israel. And it was started by a man named Judas of Galilee. And it was over this very issue of paying the poll tax uh, with a coin that had Caesar's image on it. You know, they thought that that was against the first and second commandments, which are thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shall make unto thee no graven image, and, and thou shalt not bow down to it. And so that's why they're having a big fit over this coin, that they're not going to use this coin to pay the tax because um, it's... It's in disagreement with the first and second commandments. Well, you know, I don't have a problem using this, even though it's got somebody's image on it, because I'm not bowing down to him, to George, and worshiping him. You know, so they were kind of missing the point there, but Jesus will explain that. But in 6 AD, this Judas of Galilee... Started an insurrection and his cry was that because God was the only true God, the poll tax should not be paid to Rome and Judas of Galilee had a big following. He got a lot of people to um, follow him in this attempted insurrection, but Rome put it down and Gamaliel. How many of you have heard of Gamaliel? He was a famous Pharisee. His name is in the Bible. He actually taught Saul of Tarsus. He was Saul's teacher. Saul became Paul, the Apostle Paul. Well, Gamaliel actually spoke about this Judas of Galilee. His name is also in the Bible in Acts 5, verse uh, 37. And uh, Gamaliel said that many people followed Judas of Galilee in his poll tax revolution, which was put down by Rome, and that Judas perished and the people that followed him were scattered. So his name, you know, it's really talked about in the Bible. This was all about the poll tax. And then did you know this? Behind the Jewish rebellion that uh, was against Rome that began in 66 A.D. and ended four years later in 70 A.D. when, yeah, the temple was burnt down, Jerusalem was destroyed, and the Jewish people were scattered to the four corners of the earth and didn't return until 1948. Did you know that behind that insurrection that began in 66 AD was this whole issue of paying the poll tax with the coin that bore Caesar's image and inscription on it. So you see, this this was no little issue with the Jewish people. This was a politically loaded question that they were giving to Jesus. And I gave you all this history so that you would know just how serious this question was to them. And this is why Jesus requested that one of the coins be brought to him. He was going to use it, as I did a minute ago, as a visual aid to teach the people about the important truth concerning dual citizenship. And some man, somebody ran off to get him one of the requested coins. I don't know where they got it from, but pretty soon they came back and they had the coin. And I guess they were still hoping that he was going to fall into their trap. You see, even though they now knew he had not been deceived by their hypocrisy, they still figured he had to answer their question and that he had no way out of answering their question without getting himself in trouble with either Rome or with the Jewish people. So they were all too eager to go fetch him a denarius. And when it was brought to him, he asked another question. He asked a simple question. Whose is this image? And the Greek word is icon, icon, and superscription, epigraphy. You know, what's it say? Like I to asked you before, whose is this picture? That's George, and under it says George Washington. So, he's, And they didn't have to look, like you don't have to look, probably. You knew whose picture, they knew whose picture was on there. Um, and they answered him, Caesar. On one side of that denarius was the image of Tiberius Caesar, who was now, wasn't Augustus Caesar anymore. We're about 32 A.D., and it's Tiberius Caesar, and his image is on one side of the coin, and if you flip the coin over, there he is again, <laughs> sitting on his throne in priestly robes because he considered himself the high priest of um, the Roman Empire. So he was in priestly robes, not in kingly robes. And the inscription on the coin, of course, was his name. Well, thinking that finally Jesus was going to have to, have to uh, speak some very dangerous, dangerous to himself words about the man whose face was on that coin his his opponent's quickly did answer his question by saying it was Caesar's face and then 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 came the shock then came the shock of his short but very very brilliant answer i don't know if we understand how brilliant his answer is here when we read it you know we just cuz we've heard it so often that and we know the teaching behind it that we just kind of take it for granted but this was unheard of that day and it was so brilliant that even his enemies if you look down at verse 22 even his enemies marvel at the brilliancy of his answer here he said render therefore unto caesar the things that are caesar's and unto god the things that are god's now what we have to understand first of all is that the greek word for render is not the same word that the young Pharisees had used up in verse 17 when they asked their original question is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar. They're talking about giving, you know if i give you something it's like you don't deserve it Terry here's a dollar i'm just giving it to you right? But when you when he used the word render he didn't use the word give he used the word render and render is the greek word that speaks or in greek it is a word that speaks about paying back now if i give this i render this to terry it's because i owed it to her i'm rendering it i'm paying back it implies a debt and it carries with it the idea of obligation for something that is not an option but a responsibility whose image is on the coin he wanted to know He was teaching the Pharisees to understand that some things, some things belong to an earthly power. The image was Caesar's, right? They had just said that the inscription was Caesar's. And so the point he was making was clear. They they got it. They understood the difference in words he used Uh, because the the Pharisees and all the other Jews who did not want to pay the the poll tax to Caesar, did use, they did use what was owned and provided for by Caesar. Then they owed back a debt to him for those things that they used of his. So Jesus was saying that it was lawful to pay back the poll tax to Caesar because the tax is Caesar's, the coin is Caesar's, and it pays for those things in Caesar's domain that the Jews both used and benefited from. They were obligated to pay because it was a debt owed for the things in Caesar's realm. When I use this dollar to pay my taxes, I'm using it to pay for things I enjoy in the realm of George Washington for living in the United States, right? And there are a lot of wonderful benefits that we have. You know, we might complain about paying our taxes, but we have a lot of privileges in this country, living in this country. I mean, we take for granted the highway out there that I can just get in my car and go on that road, smoothly go back to my home in Moore County. You know, we shouldn't complain about the privileges there. It's, it's in the, the physical realm. It doesn't mean that I bow down and worship the guy whose picture and inscription is on this. The Roman Empire had provided many, many positive services and benefits for her conquered peoples. And the greatest one of all was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace under Rome's protection. Nations, especially little nations like Israel, they didn't have to worry about wars from vicious nations. They didn't have to worry about the Philistines invading, and the Hittites, and the and the Jebusites, and the Parasites, and the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. Because you know Rome protected her people. Yes, they were under the mighty arm of Rome, but that was. Pretty much a good thing, because there was peace within the Roman Empire. They were free from war, and people could travel in relative safety anywhere in the, in the empire because of the Pax Romana and because of the great highway system that had been developed by Rome. That was previously unheard of for individuals to travel from one part of the world to another in relative safety. I mean, they'd be killed along the way. You know, you had to go in a big caravan. So they, they provided a lot of protection for them. And also under the rule of law offered by Rome, there was protection against thieves. I mean, they punished thieves and criminals, etc. And the Romans built a vast aqueduct system that provided her peoples with a, 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 a beneficial water supply. So there were a lot of things. And the Pharisees had considered payment of of any tax to Rome or to Caesar as something that was not their duty. But the Lord was simply telling them that the payment of the tax was not only legal, but it was something that they were morally obligated to do. It was paying back a debt. It wasn't immoral for them to pay the tax. They were morally obligated to do it. Render, pay back. You and I it's a command render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's you know who issued that command the son of God himself so you know you can't you don't have any excuse for not paying your taxes even if we don't like them even if it isn't just one percent you have to work until half of the year is over to pay your taxes it's a command by the son of God we do need to pay our taxes those who receive the benefits of of Rome's privileges and services were under moral obligation to render back the stipulated portion of taxes. Now, the the Lord's words to the Jewish people here, you know, were expanded upon in the New Testament. Um, and, And they were taught to Christians. True believers, true believers, you and I, I hope everybody in here is a true believer, we have a dual citizenship. We are temporarily citizens of this world, are we not? But our permanent... And true citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20. As citizens of this world, we must respect the offices of earthly rulers or elected leaders. We must respect the offices. We must pay our taxes. We must obey the laws of our land, which includes the speed limits. (laughs) And we are even commanded to pray for those who are in authority over us, 1 Timothy 2.1. Human governments are necessary. You know, sometimes we complain about them, don't we? But they're absolutely necessary. God put governments there for our good because man is sinful. And can you imagine what living in this nation would be like without government? Every man doing that which is right in his own size. You know, they do that pretty much even with government and jails. And But uh, without it, there would just be total anarchy. Well, Paul tells us in Romans 13 that a reason we are to obey those who are in authority over us is because they are God's ministers. What? You've got to be kidding. Some of those guys are God's ministers. Well, they are. That's what it says in Romans 13. Even if those fellows don't and women don't know it and don't even even if they don't believe in God, nonetheless, they are God's ministers. Paul says, there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Who put those men and women over us? God. God is the one who sets up kings and takes them down, and presidents, and Congress, and (laughs) all the rest of them. Therefore, Christians... Above all other people, we are specially bound to be obedient in the matter of subjection to government. It says in Romans 13, 1, Render therefore to all their dues tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And if you think that that is just asking too much of us living in this day of corruption, you cannot turn on the evening news without hearing more corruption in government in Washington, D.C. Corruption, corruption, corruption at every level. Executive branch, legislative branch, judicial branch. And if you think, well, it's just too much for us, I mean, there are definitely a lot of issues established by government that we as Christians do not agree with. But remember this. When Paul wrote those words I just read to you in Romans, he was living under the same pagan Roman system of government. That Jesus lived under when he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Except when Paul wrote Romans, things were even worse because Caesar worship had gotten even more prominent and Christians were being persecuted. You know, if you think about the Jews living under the Roman Empire, they really weren't persecuted. The Romans would never have bothered the Jews, really, if the Jews hadn't kept rebelling against them. It was the Jews' fault. They were always the ones who were starting the turmoil. And even Titus of Vespasian, when Rome was, um, when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was burned, he didn't give that order to burn it. They were trying, they, they tried, but the Jews were just so self-righteous and so rebellious. But by the time of Paul, Christians were being persecuted. But the best citizen will honor his country because he loves and worships. God. He will honor his country because he loves and worships God because he understands that God is sovereign, as I said, you know, and the Jews should have understood this if they had really known God and if they had really understood the sovereignty of God as is taught in Daniel. Doesn't it say in Daniel that God is the one that sets up kings? I mean, didn't they know that it was going to be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome (laughs) that God had predicted Rome would, you know, follow Greece? And that everything was orchestrated by God. If they had really understood that God was the one who was moving the little chess pieces around on the chessboard. Then they would have been able to submit to those in authority over them. The Roman Empire. And they would have looked for the good. They would have looked for the blessings in being oppressed by these people. Now the Romans were human beings just like them. And in our study of Christ's life we've met a lot of good Romans. Haven't we? I mean... The two people he commended the most for their great faith were both Gentiles. One was a Roman centurion and the other was a Syrophoenician woman. And then there was that Roman centurion who was at the foot of the cross who recognized this surely must be the Son of God. If, they, if the Jewish people had understood God's sovereignty, they could have said, well, there's a, there must be a reason for Rome, you know, us being subjected to Rome right now. There's a reason for all this. Maybe it's so that we can witness to these guys who are over here and have got a garrison here and these soldiers and Pontius Pilate. And so they should have had the attitude to be the best. I can't say Christians because because they weren't, but the best Jews that they could possibly be so that they could share the truth of Jehovah God, the true God with them. Like Paul did every time he was chained to another Roman uh, guard. Um, he would witness to that guard and they would get saved. They could have been using the Romans in their country as, you know, to be a testimony to them. If they had been loving and kind instead of looking down their noses at them and treating them so hatefully and, and, um, by the way, the poll tax rebellion was what started the sect of the zealots. The zealots were those, and Jesus had a disciple who had been a zealot, Simon the zealot. The zealots were those who would slip on, up on the Romans if they, if they caught a Roman soldier in the middle of the night in the city, you know, behind a, in an alley or something. They would go up and slit their throats and kill them. That's how much they hated the Romans. But if they had had a different perspective on things, if they had understood God's sovereignty, they could have, they could have lovingly accepted the Romans and, and kindly and, and with a sweet spirit have witnessed to them. And many Romans would have gotten saved. But so they, they just, and Peter didn't understand this either, did Peter? Peter originally didn't understand all of this. Uh, he did later when he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he grew spiritually, but initially he wanted to fight. He hacked off that high priest's ear, Malchus. Um, but later on, after he grew, he wrote these words, and this, this is in 1 Peter 2. He said, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake, we submit ourselves. I mean, we have it pretty good living in a republic. We could be living in a government with a dictator or um, a government run by zealous Muslims um, who, who hate. We could live in a communistic country. And if we did, we'd have to make the best of it and understand that, that you know God is doing all of that but uh, we have it pretty good but we're to submit for the Lord's sake just like when you submit to your husband you're to do it even if you don't agree with him you're to do it for the Lord's sake everything we, to do, we do whatever we say or do is to be for the Lord's sake as unto the Lord he says submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether it be to get the king as supreme or to governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well for so is the will of God it's the will of God to submit that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Under, so we find that under divine inspiration, both Paul and Peter were saying that it is by God's sovereign decree that kings and presidents and governments stand in their respective places. So to resist government is to resist God and to, resist to, to, to refuse to pay taxes is to disobey God. Now, although there are times when we are not able to respect the person of those in various governmental positions, if I lived in Iraq, Iran, I certainly could not respect the person of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And there are many persons, sad to say, in Washington, D.C., who I do not respect as a person. Yet, we have to respect the office the governmental offices, and we are to pray for those in authority over us. Obedience to governments and rulers honors God who put them there over us, okay? Now, there's one exception. We do not obey when obedience to government does uh, conflicts with obedience to God. And an example of this happened with Peter and John. When they were sharing the gospel and the Sanhedrin council came to them, arrested them and said, you will no more teach or preach in the name of Jesus. And what did they say? We must obey God rather than man. So if we lived under some kind of a government that forbid us from studying God's word, from assembling together, from preaching Christ and witnessing, we would disobey because we have to put God first in situations like that. And Jesus did say something else, didn't he? Besides saying, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he went on to say, and render unto God the things that are God's. He made it clear that there are two realms of authority in life. There is the realm of human government, and there is the realm of God. And just as the image of Caesar was, on, was engraved on that silver denarius coin, so is the image of god engraved where on us were we not made in the image of god we were created in the image of god our spirit is made in his likeness and we must worship him how in spirit and in truth so caesar caesar you know he uh As a representative of of human government, and I say Caesar just speaking of presidents or kings or whoever, but as a representative of human government, Caesar has a right to collect taxes from from those of his who are his subjects in the physical realm. But he has no right to command worship because worship is in the spiritual realm. And that is the realm of God men are to pay their taxes to the head of the government, but they are never to pay their homage to him as a God. I can use this money to pay for things in George's realm, but I am never to worship George. not that I ever would think of that he's dead, but never worship George as a God. Any governmental rulers claim a realm is solely political and economical. And if the governmental ruler attempts to step out of that realm and enter God's realm by commanding worship, then man's obligation to him ceases in that realm. Okay? So the Lord was saying that the Jews were to pay their taxes as the debt owed to them, uh, our debt owed to human government, but they were only to render their worship to God. And that was revolutionary. I know it doesn't sound revolutionary to us because we're used to it. But it was revolutionary at the time. And every Jew who heard the Lord's answer and even any Romans and Gentiles who heard it, they immediately recognized the deep wisdom of it. No one could run to the Roman authorities. No one could run to Pontius Pilate and complain about Jesus' answer. And nor did the crowds turn away from him. In fact, the crowds listening to him admired him even more than before. And even his enemies had to admit that uh, this was a marvelous response. They admired his response. So Luke 20, 26 tells us that those who had come to entangle him were not able to take hold of the sayings before the people, and they marveled at his answer, and they held their peace. He had wisely, he had justly, and he had so very simply just one sentence. He had drawn the line of demarcation between the two realms of life, placing Caesar in his rightful realm and God in his. And Christians are to be good citizens in both realms, we're to be the best citizens of all. And that doesn't mean we can't protest things that we disagree with, you know. But when we protest, how are we to protest? Are we to be hate mongers going out there with placards that say God hates homosexuals? Is that the right way to protest? There's a right way to do something and there's a wrong way. That isn't a loving way. That's like the Pharisees did with the Romans. You're not going to win anybody over that way. You do so lovingly as peacemakers, as much as you can being peacemakers. You don't go out and you kill the doc the abortionist doctor. That just is used against us. So we need to be the best citizens we can be in both realms. What does it say in first Peter two seventeen? Fear God and honor the king. All right, thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for again the patience of your people who sit here a long time I know and they're so attentive and they have such willing hearts to listen to your word taught to them so that they might be more like your son more in love with your son Jesus and and be more conformed into his likeness I thank you Lord for the spiritual growth that has taken place here this year because even though we cannot see it I know it's something that occurs whenever we are meditating upon your written word and all the invaluable truths that it contains, not only for our daily life, but for eternal life to come. And now I pray a special blessing upon these lovely women in this, um, in this time now that we have a break. I pray that you'll use them as salt and light in the next two weeks and bring all of us back safely. Lord, and may we truly, truly live for you in these in these end times. For we pray, Jesus, in your name.